Hello, howdy. This is Spur of the Moment from Lasso Digital. I'm Annika Pelkey from Lasso Digital. On today's episode, I got a chat with Katie Lorg, the Vice President of Nonprofit Development at Proof Positioning. With over a decade of experience in the nonprofit sector, Katie now supports nonprofits by finding the motivations behind donors' actions. We chatted about her takeaways from working in the sector and the tips she has for nonprofits just starting off. My name is Katie Lord, pronouns she, her, and I work at a company called Proof Positioning, where I'm vice president of nonprofit development. And, oh gosh, a little bit about me. I think much like all of us in the nonprofit sector, we've all had some sort of weird serpentine career. So moved around a lot as a kid, but ended up in Kansas as my dad was in the Coast Guard, which makes zero sense, (laughs) but went to the University of Kansas, studied psychology and communications because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. Nonprofit degrees were not a thing at that time. And all I knew is that I wanted to help people and talk to people. And that was what I wanted to base my career on. And so I started out in association world and worked for AAA or the American Automobile Association. Really enjoyed that, but association world wasn't maybe the best fit for me at that time. And so I had someone who took a chance on me and I worked at American Cancer Society and fell into fundraising as most of us in the sector do. So I had the opportunity to work at three large national organizations throughout my career. I worked at American Cancer Society, then went to Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and then ended up at Make-A-Wish. Following Make-A-Wish, I had kind of a been in the sector for about eight years, and I think they call it like the seven or eight year itch, and really loved what I was doing, but wanted to make a bigger impact and work with multiple missions. And so it was through networking that I actually had the opportunity to go work for a consulting firm, a nationally known one here in Kansas City, and did that for four years, worked on capital campaigns. I kind of specialized in the area of about two to $20 million was kind of my my niche in the capital campaign world. And um, then had the opportunity to come over to Proof. It was really one of those perfect, world storm type opportunities that just falls in your lap. And you're so grateful that they do and have been here for three years. And I came over specifically to bring what proof was doing to the nonprofit sector because I just saw such value in it and really felt that it was a tool that had, I had the opportunity to use more when I was fundraising, it would have helped me with a lot of different aspects of my job. So So that's a little bit about me. I have a dog and a five-year-old and love to travel. So there's my little bio. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. Love it. That's so funny that you majored in communication and psychology. I had the exact same double major. Yay! Um, Haven't come across many folks with it. (laughs) Give me a lot of unicorns. unicorns. (laughs) We're like this weird person who's like, I like the psych and I want to read all the pop psych, but then I want to communicate with people using it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I like what you said about wanting to help people and talk to people. That's exactly what led me in that direction too. (laughs) So you are the vice president of nonprofit development for proof positioning. I know you mentioned that a little bit, but could you give us an overview of proof positioning and the services you folks provide? 
Yes. So here at Proof, we are a market research firm that uses emotional data and motivations to help nonprofits and companies say the right things to the right people. So it's really a lot of helping to define your audience, who your audience is, and how we define those audiences, and then also what motivates them to buy from you, do business with you, volunteer, make a donation, sign up for your newsletter, whatever that could be. And so it's really through targeted messaging, emotional motivations, why do people do what they do and what motivates them to take those actions. And and then just again, kind of how to use that information into more targeted messaging. So what I do a lot all day, every day is I work with nonprofit organizations and we really focus on helping them to create longer, more sustainable relationships with their current donor database, and then also look at acquisition as well. Beautiful. Well, this proof is so interesting to me just because of the mix of research and nonprofit help. And I'd love to hear a bit about how proof came to be um, and how it got started, because I know you've had kind of an interesting history. Yes, we have. So my, um, our founder, Grant Gooding, and, and my boss, He actually came from the mergers and acquisitions world where all day his job was to measure, you know, blue sky. Why, when two companies were coming together, what was kind of the unmeasurable, if you will, and try to quantify that. And so what he found out was at the end of the day, when when a deal was done, you know, everyone got paid, but there was a 70% failure rate of organizations that were acquired. So inside of three years, the organizations that were acquired were not financially sustainable in and of themselves any longer. And so what did that mean? That meant that there was some sort of nuance or something that was changed by the acquiring company that was really the fundamental of why people did business with that organization. And once that was changed, that connection was broken. And so they either became commoditized or they people didn't have that connection anymore. And so they left and they went to competitors. So Grant really wanted to know, okay, how can we define that up front, if you will, and say, okay, this is why people do business with you. So don't change these things internally when you are acquiring this organization and it should continue to grow and be sustainable. Well, um, everyone loved that, but some of the bankers and lawyers, because that was the secret sauce, if you will, of some of the organizations. So, you know, if Janet in customer service is why people say, because she is, which we actually had this happen, because she is the linchpin of making sure that people get everything on time and are are happy, why wouldn't the organization just go steal Janet versus acquire the whole company? So it kind of became one of those things that we he built it as an acquisition, mergers and acquisition product, and it failed miserably in that sector. But what it did actually come out was on the other side is businesses really saying and looking and digging in and saying, okay, how do I keep, retain, or attract new customers? And that became much more of our niche versus the mergers and acquisitions line of business, which is actually what we thought it was going to be. And then um, how the nonprofit sector actually came to be. It's one of those funny stories uh, that we love to tell in company history is, so when I was working at the campaign firm, I ran into two or three people that had been using proof in the nonprofit sector. And, And as a nonprofit sector, we are a tight sector. 
you know, we, we network really well together. Everyone kind of knows what everyone's doing. And especially in Kansas city, you know, we're not a bit, we're a big, small town. And so I called Grant up and I said, Hey, you know, what are you doing with some of my clients? You work in for-profits, you don't work in nonprofits. And he said, you're right. I don't work in nonprofits. And I was like, well, your name's come up two or three times and that's not coincidence in a week. So let's go have coffee. And come to find out he'd actually worked with 30 nonprofits. He had no idea he'd worked with that many organizations. And through just kind of our conversations, it really became clear that this was something that nonprofits wanted and needed, um, but was also something that is different. Nonprofits have their own nuances. We are we are like business in certain ways, but we are not like business in other ways. And so how how could we take what Proof was doing and really create create an opportunity for it to become um, an affordable piece of what nonprofits can do as far as their donor um, and market research? That makes a lot of sense. I guess my next question is, if you could tell me a little bit more about your career before uh, your current position. I know you touched on a lot of different things you've done. Uh, you worked in an agency, a consulting agency before. How do you think all of these roles prepared you for your position at Proof? Oh, they all did. I mean, they. I think there's so much growth opportunity in every position that we have. And sometimes we love positions that we had in the past and sometimes we don't. But there's still a lot of things that we learned and, and grew in them. So, you know, what I would say I learned from the consulting agency is I really learned a lot of um, project management for sure. But I also got a very comfortable qualifying people and and understanding where people's pain points were. I think that that was very helpful. And I started to see patterns. What's really interesting about sitting on the consulting side, and, and I'm sure that you totally see this too, Annika, is like when you're on the agency side or things, sometimes you get such a a, a higher perspective that you're like, oh, well, these two sectors would never work together, but I can see some of the similarities. And so either a collaboration might work or why don't we pick something up that's working in this sector and drop it, drop it in this one. And it was just kind of the same things for nonprofit subsectors like, okay, well, what's working over here in healthcare actually might work in this education and vice versa organization. So having that opportunity to kind of see a higher level, I think problem solving is something I've had to learn in every job sometimes harder than ever. And then also, again, just creating that network and truly being a, you know, go giver. That's one of my favorite books, but um, I truly believe that a rising time raises all ships. I am not of the scarcity mindset. I think, I, I think everyone can win or win in certain ways. I just think that we all need to define our roles better. So I think that that's something that I've definitely learned at proof But in my previous position, I would say it was definitely a lot of project management, time management, which I could always do better on. I definitely fall into the time planning fallacy where I'm like, no, I can get that done in two hours. And then four hours later, I'm like, nope, still doing it. (laughs) So I think that that's something that I definitely learned. And then, you know, going back a little bit further, I would say what I learned is sometimes it doesn't matter whose name is on the door in nonprofit. Some issues are just systemic to the sector. And until we decide to change things as a sector, and until we understand maybe our place more um, at the table of kind of the government, corporate, and nonprofit trifecta, and are a little bit... Um, a little bit louder, to be quite honest with you. I think sometimes we still apologize for what we do and government and corporate can't figure it out. We can to a degree, but we also can integrate into each other. You know, a a movement that I'm really excited about right now is kind of this 
blending of nonprofit and the corporate sector and seeing how we're getting, you know, the rise of B Corps and social entrepreneurs and how that, you know, how we're all going to figure that out. I think it's a very exciting thing. I mean, I, but I think that there's kinks that need to be worked out too. So I think that in, in every position, one of the most important things that I've always taken back is people don't leave institutions. People leave people. People work well with people. People give to people. People do business with people. So it doesn't really matter what institutions we're working with. It all comes back to people and relationships and communication. And as long as we can harness that and understand that and continue to constantly be growing and changing in that, the future looks bright. For sure. I think that your passion for the nonprofit sector is pretty clear uh, through and through, but I'd love to hear like what keeps you coming back, even though you're on the agency side of things now, what is keeping you here supporting nonprofits every day? You know, I've always said I will work on and or for the sector because I truly believe in what we do. I truly believe too, that the nonprofit sector is where so much change happens that we sometimes don't take credit for. We are doing a lot of work on the ground. If you look at a lot of different social justice issues, the first person that you will meet in any of those leadership roles is usually a nonprofit person. If somebody is coming over and is an immigrant here, the first person they might talk to or get in touch with is a nonprofit who can help get them established. If someone is in a natural disaster, it's not the government agencies that are on the ground first. It's usually the nonprofits that are out helping shelter people and setting up those things. And then the government agencies come. So really, we interact with the nonprofit sector so much every day, we don't even realize it. Hospitals are nonprofits. Most colleges are nonprofits. Um, and schools, uh, some of the independent schools are nonprofits. So we all have been touched so much by nonprofits, whether that's even just getting information from a website that maybe we didn't have or a support group or something. It's so integrated into our lives. I don't think we even realize how much it is. And so bringing that consciousness back to individuals and, you know, something that I would say I am so passionate about is increasing the democratization of giving. We have a And we have a giving problem where we don't have people that feel like their gifts can make a difference because it's not the mega gifts. And we celebrate these mega gifts and these mega investments, but we also don't celebrate the $10 donor who in that act of sacrifice is still giving what they could. That $10 could be a huge investment for someone. And we need to do a better job of creating those opportunities for the masses to pool their funds and drive that social change with their time, talent, treasure, their ties, their testimonies, so their networks and telling stories. Um, That's something that I think we really, really need to work on. And then we also need to continue recruiting and diversifying our sector. I love it when nonprofits say that I hope we go out of business. I truly think that there are some nonprofits that can go out of business. However, we are always going to need the nonprofit sector, no matter what. You know, utopia is not achievable. And so we're always going to have needs for the nonprofit sector. So it's really just continuing to be agile, know when something isn't working anymore, and to drive that innovation into what the next iteration of the sector looks like. I think it's just a super exciting time to to be a nonprofit and to be in the landscape right now with, with so much change. But those are the two things that keep me coming back. It's how do we inspire people to give and get involved? involved in a field that their gift is meaningful? And then how do we continue to retain talent or attract new talent into the sector? 
I love what you said about celebrating small gifts. I have a history in the political sphere. And I think that is just something that I hadn't seen in the, like before 10 years ago, people weren't talking as much about the small gifts and how important they are for getting a campaign up and running and making sure people are heard. Yeah. I just, I so appreciate you bringing that up. So Proof provides market research that focuses on emotions, as we have discussed. Um, Can you tell me a bit about what that is and how it might differ from traditional market research? Yes. So what makes ours a little bit different is going back to the psychology, which you and I both are like, yay, psychology. (laughs) Um, we, We get to use that some of the psychology and the behavioral economics that have really come up in the past few years. We, what makes us different is we harness that um, research and, you know, those psychological principles and practices, if you will, to derive what motivates people. So what makes ours a little bit different is we don't just aggregate your data and look at uh, trends within your current data. What we do is we do surveys, which I know is like the most unsexy thing ever. (laughs) Um, when people are like, yeah, I take surveys. It's not that hard. I have survey monkey. Okay. But what makes ours a little bit different is we have built out an algorithm, if you will, that measures using timing mechanisms and um, social behaviors to measure people's reactivity to messages. So what does that really mean? That was like a, you know, a, a $50,000 explanation. So distilling <laughs> that 50, you know, distilling that down is I measure your reaction time, if you're changing your answers and have built into this system a way for us to measure how quickly your brain is processing reactions to things. And that is how we know if there's a logical or an emotional decision. A emotional decision is almost instantaneous. You don't think about it. It is something that is so ingrained in you that it's, you know, it's tied to, you know, maybe a value or a way that you see yourself And so you make that emotional decision. 100% of our decisions are made emotionally, actually. And then we use logic to justify it later. In milliseconds, this is what's terrifying. In milliseconds, which is what we measure, it takes 200 milliseconds for your brain to make a decision and 400 milliseconds for your brain not to change their mind. Mm -hmm. And so we can measure if you did change your mind. And then outside of that, if you are starting to justify and go back and change your answer or if you're logically thinking about it too much. So something that we constantly use is, you know, when we're talking to people, if they have kids, it's like, how important is the safety of your children? Well, most of the time that's an instantaneous 10. I mean, you, you asked me that question and I go 10, I see a 10, I hear a 10 in my brain and I've made that decision and I can select that answer without anything. If you ask me then how important is it that my child attends an Ivy League school or that my partner has their dream job, well, that slows down a little bit. It still might be millisecond answers, but the answer instead of a you know a 10 on a one through 10 scale might be a four or a five or a two, depending. And that's a non-emotive answer. And I can measure the the differences in those split second decisions and then come back and, and help you understand you know, what is emotionally resonant to people in in groupings. So, you know, a great example is, which I I love to use this one. We had an organization and they came to us and they wanted to know kind of who was the decision maker for them to to go out and, and visit the Arboretum. It's the Arboretum here in Kansas City. And it was, I can 100% tell you it was women. Millennial moms were driving the decisions And so it was basically spend $0 on men because they're not the ones making the decision to come out. It's the women. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so it's able to be like, okay, so don't spend any of your marketing budget here, spend it here. And another organization, we found that there was a vast difference in values between volunteers and donors. So people who were donors wanted to give a fish, people who were volunteers wanted to teach to fish, mm-hmm. if you will. And so when we were sending out the message of give the, you know, give, give a fish to everyone, that didn't motivate the volunteers at all. And so that's why volunteers weren't giving. So we were able to change the messaging into more of a, you are a volunteer, you're volunteering your time, you're helping break the cycle and teaching people to fish. And we had a, I think immediately, I think we saw a 30% conversion rate just with our first message because we were talking on what was relevant and resonant to them. And it's easy to ignore something that isn't that emotional to you. That was one that was surprising to me, the volunteers and donors, because I'd actually worked with that organization in the past. Mm -hmm. So that one, that was pretty, um, that was pretty eye-opening because we had done so many different things to try to convert volunteers. And I was like, (laughs) we have literally done all the best practices. Why isn't this working? So that was a very long-winded answer. (laughs) This is like bread and butter for me. I could like (laughs) listen to you talk about this all day long. This is, I don't know. I can't tell you anything that interests me more than this, honestly. I guess that this research to me obviously seems incredible and I'm obsessed with it, but um, how do you think this type of market research can benefit nonprofit organizations? I know you sort of touched on it, but maybe if you have any examples of uh, when your research completely changed the game for a client and how powerful uh, this type of research can be. Yeah. So we've had a couple of nonprofits where we have gone in and done an analysis of their programs and where people like to give what people want to do. And there was one organization that works with children and adults, primarily actually they work with adults, but they do have some family-based programming, their literacy agency. It was very, very interesting to hear that it was very, the the dichotomy of those two messages were very, very different. People wanted to hear about kids. So it's kind of one of those lead with children as much as you possibly can. Whereas while they do serve more um, adults, it was lead with the children and family talk a lot about those programs. But the other thing was as well is very, very much what we have been, what we saw is It was all about creating autonomy within the family. And so they kind of were talking about autonomy on a larger scale. And it's like, no, you need to talk about what that means for a parent to become literate, to be able to teach their child to become literate, to be able to be autonomous within their community. And so, you know, where kind of it was a lot of kind of, you know, well, we do workforce development and we do this and we do this. And it was like, no, we really need to just go back to, you know, shore the core, if you will. And um, we've had that several times, actually, where we've had to go back. We've told organizations before to cut programs where like people that, you know, people do not see this as part of your wheelhouse. And so that has been transformational where we have told them to stop talking, you know, basically every time you bring up this program, you're losing money. So you just need to either, if you're going to continue to do the program, that's fine, but you need to basically just stop talking about it and focus on your other programs. And that will hopefully raise enough in, you know, uh, operational 
support that you can cover that program or you just need to do away with it. Mm-hmm. Something else that we've done is, which which I thought was really fun, is we've done some digging into organizations that have earned revenue models. And so how do you get a client to become a donor a donor and a donor to become a client? Sometimes those can really make sense. And sometimes it's like, well, they don't see themselves in this way. And so it was dividing those audiences. But how do you also define that middle ground of like, oh, okay, I come and I, you know, take a class from your institution, but then how do I, you know, look at my class and then become a donor as well? How do we kind of start those journeys of creating those? And those have been really transformational for many is how do I get, um, again, going back to an organization that we just, we just did, it's, they offer a lot of free services or free programming, but it's okay. Once you use those, how do you become a donor? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, pretty, um, pretty interesting on how the message really uh, was different from corporations to individuals, but most of them came in through corporations. Mm-hmm. They were corporate donor or corporate volunteers or something. And then they came in, but it's like, okay, now you have to talk to them in a different way, even though their corporations values are this, their personal ones are this. As I have said before, I love this stuff so much. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad you brought up the concept of nonprofits cutting programs. I think that must happen all the time just because any person in the nonprofit world is the kind of person that just wants to help in any way they can. And it's easy to expand what you want to provide to the world um, through your nonprofit, but I'm sure that can, can be detrimental at times. So Thank you for touching on that. Well, no, like, and just to expand a little bit, I mean, yes, sometimes it's cutting programs and sometimes it's creating collaborations Mm -hmm. and and identifying who those collaboration partners could be, because it could be Mm -hmm. people that your donors are already giving to. And it's like, okay, well, they're giving to them, they're giving to you. Why are you two not talking? Because this could be, you know, a, a pretty big opportunity for you to do a joint program. And that goes back again to knowing, knowing where we are in the system, We can't all be all things to all people. An agency can't, a nonprofit can't, a company can't, the government can't. We all cannot be all things to people. So it's understanding in a continuum of any sort of social problem, whether it's hunger or homeless pets or veterans or, um, you know, foster system or things like that. Where does our organization fit? Where, where are we the best and where are we not? So where can we shed that and really focus on what we do and then create those partnerships to kind of move people through a system? That's how systems changed happens. And I think the more that we start to understand that and understand our individual roles at nonprofits within the larger system, the better everyone's going to be and the more change we're going to make. Mm-hmm. That's something that we help identify a lot. For sure. Um, I guess speaking of finding our place in our systems, Lasso has brought in a fundraising branch within um, the past year or so. Which so I love so much. Yes. I cannot okay, even tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I love it. I can't imagine like why it doesn't happen more often because there's so, so much overlap in those two areas. No, um, I can tell you why it doesn't happen though. Ooh. And I would love, well, this is, this is my perspective and mm-hmm. I, I would love your perspective as well on this, Monica, cause you live it every day. <laughs> but I think when you are in nonprofit, sometimes, you know, the marketing and the fundraising department should be best friends and they're not always. In fact, mm-hmm. I've seen it more often than not, than they're not, that they're not best friends because it's, well, I'm helping raise brand awareness, blah, blah, blah. And the other one's like, well, I'm raising money. And it's like, those are actually not diametrically opposite. Those are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, but I still think that there, for some reason with budgets and all sorts of things, there's just like this dichotomy that's created 
maybe probably unintentionally, but like when I observe that, I see that so much within organizations. And so what I love that Lasso's doing is you're like, okay, man, we're going to just, we're going to, you know, take, take that problem out of it because we understand how much they work together and how vital that we are. And so we are modeling a system that works. Mm -hmm. So like, that is why I'm so excited is it's like, you are showing everyone that like, no fundraising and marketing do go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. They can be best friends and showing people how that can be implemented and, done well and creating your suite of services that I just think is so seamless for organizations to come in and be like, okay, here, here it is and and help. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, yeah, I definitely do see the like two sides of the same coin, but not really communicating. Like uh, as we first started, it was definitely, there were some growing pains because all of us are from nonprofit backgrounds where we are used to those being two completely different departments. So we have really had to be very mindful about connecting our communications internally to make sure that we are doing best practices for both and just meshing as well as we can. And it, I think we are at that point today, but yeah, I definitely can see how in most organizations it is not quite so easy to merge those. One of the last questions I had for you was fundraising and marketing have always been challenges in the nonprofit sector. So I'd love to hear some tips if you have them for organizations when it comes to successfully navigating these challenges. Yeah. Okay. So with, gosh, that's a really, that's a doozy of a question. (laughs) Okay. So some things that I would say that we just need to start thinking about is of course, donor pathways and how we are communicating not how we want to be perceived but how our donors want to perceive us if that makes que- if that makes any sort of sense. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is we really have to start living by the platinum rule, treat donors how they want to be treated instead of how do we want to treat them or how we would like to be treated because it really is going back to we live in the Amazon and the Netflix world, right? I expect Netflix to know me and they tell me what shows to watch next. And the same goes with Amazon. They're like, buy these other books, Katie. (laughs) And I end up doing it all the time. And so what we need to do is create those experiences for our donors, tell them the stories they want to be told, feed them the content that they want to be feeded because they are fed because they are so getting so many messages coming at them all the time, not just from us, but from all the other nonprofits that they support And we really need to be feeding them what they want so that it goes to top of mind. The next thing that I would say that is so important is we really do have to be multi-channel. And how can you do that is recycle messages. Evergreen content is okay. And also tell a story or a narrative that you're telling across multiple channels. Tell it in your email, tell it online socially, tell it in your direct mail. Because the fact of the matter is, because I'm getting all of those messages, I'm not probably remembering your message. And so if I'm getting it from multiple sides, you're reinforcing that. And I'm more likely to take action or notice and have you rise out of that noise. And again, you might have have gone, okay, well, we posted that a couple of weeks ago. I can guarantee I can't remember what somebody posted a few weeks ago. I can't remember what I posted a few weeks ago. So give people reoccurring content, give them content from you that maybe you have posted before because it could be new or they didn't notice it the first time. 
and also build up from other sources too. Your job as a nonprofit is to be a resource for your cause area. And you can't be an expert in all things, but what you can do is be the person who knows where the content comes from, where the best research is, where cool things are happening. And it's your job to feed that back out and to be that curator of content so that people know and trust and build that brand um, story voice with you, but also just again, create that trust. So trust is so important and it's something that it's hard to earn and can be lost very quickly. But we know right now that actually we have more trust in corporations than we do in nonprofits. That's kind of a scary thing a little bit. So we need to lead into being the curators of those content, building that trust, showing people the impact that we're doing and continually telling them that again and again. I guarantee you're not going to be oversharing. And then my last thing would be, I know we all have acquisition and we all really need to focus on acquisition, but going into a recession, which I know unpopular opinion, (laughs) we really need to be focused on who do we have right now? How are we maximizing the lists and the donors that we already have? I can guarantee we are all not maximizing our current donor databases. We're not fishing in our own ponds enough. And that can cause people to leave or to lapse instead of nurturing the relationships that we have. Those are the people that are tried and true and want to continue to grow with us. So let's talk to them. Let's nurture those relationships instead of constantly trying to acquire or do new things. Um, Love the ones you got. I love that. Yeah. You bring up a lot of good points. I think something that obviously is very closely tied to fundraising and marketing as um, proof positioning knows very well. Um, Emotional motivations are really, really important when making big asks and building any kind of relationship uh, with your donors. So I'd love to hear uh, what tips you maybe have for uh, finding those emotional motivations of supporters for maybe like a small organization that's just starting out? So for a small organization, if you can, it's really important to do A-B testing. And I know that that's time consuming, but you really do need to do some A-B testing. Just very, very basic, you know, just change a picture or change a call to action. It doesn't have to be you're writing two completely different campaigns. It can be small tweaks that make huge differences. So start doing and get in the habit of doing some A-B testing. And then also, you know, of course, I'm going to say proof, but what you really need to be doing is asking your donors. The best way to know what your donors want is to ask them, give them what they want. The best way to do that is through surveys. Even if it's a five question survey that you're doing annually, asking people, how do they want to be communicated with? How do they want to hear from you? What stories are of interest so that you can start segmenting those lists? Even if it's very basic to begin with, you know, volunteers versus donors, or by category of donor. There's so many different ways that you can do that, but start giving people the content that they want in the medium that they want at the most basic level. That is the really good place to start and to start again, building on that trust of, okay, they said, don't email. So I'm going to call, or I'm going to do social media posts. And then the last thing is you cannot be good at everything. Pick two pick two things to be really good at. So pick a social media channel, pick email, pick direct mail, pick phone outreach, whatever it is, but you need to crush 
two of those areas. The top two areas that your donors come back and tell you that they want to hear from you on, those are the areas that you need to spend all of your time on because you cannot be all things to all people. And you need to very much focus on where your donors are, not where you want them to be, not where you want to find them, but where they currently are today. Yeah, I think that is super helpful for our listeners out there. I think that a lot of folks get started in nonprofit and then don't really know uh, how to do the fundraising, marketing, like relationship side of it right away. So I'm, I'm sure oh, people so really hard. appreciate I mean, ha- really fundraising and marketing, you guys should be best friends <laughs> and you need to be having joint meetings and constantly communicating and, you know, just make sure that the right hand and the left hand know what, what you are each doing and at least rowing in the same direction mm-hmm. and not stepping on each other's toes. <laughs> yeah. Communicate, communicate. <laughs> Sweet. Well, um, Do you have any final thoughts before uh, we sign off? You know, just everyone continue to be curious. That's something that I would say going into 2023, things continue to change. Technology is changing. You know, we constantly are hearing in the world that the sky is falling, but just continue to be curious, be open-minded. Even if you tried something a few years ago, try it again. Things have changed. If you tried things pre-COVID, it's a great time to try them again. Be curious on what's new and happening. Read articles, talk to people like Lasso and, um, you know, listen to webinars. Just constantly be curious and hear what's going on because we really do have so many exciting things happening in the sector. It's the best time to be curious and try, try new things. Be curious um, and be nimble. Spur of the Moment is produced by Lasso Digital, a marketing and fundraising agency with the goal of helping nonprofits raise more funds, spread their vision, and achieve their mission. Our show is directed by Annika Pelkey, edited by Katie Janner, and our music is by Sean Hess. To find more episodes of Spur of the Moment or to find out more about Lasso, check out our website, lassodigital.co. Mm-hmm.